Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library podcast is brought to you in part by the generous support of our Patreon members. To help support the show and get the chance to ask questions for a monthly Q&A, check out patreon.com slash secretlibrary. Many thanks to those as well who have been to secretlibrarypodcast.com slash review and left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Your kind reviews make our day and help others to find the show more easily. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 3, The Nourished Writer. My guest today is Amy Cooper-Wright. She is founder and creative director of Mark and Fold, the modern stationer, and visiting lecturer in graphic design. Having studied philosophy and French at Oxford, and having worked for a number of years as a producer for design agencies, Amy retrained in graphic design and bookbinding before channeling these lifelong passions into Mark and Fold in 2015. Markenfold creates stationery that is modern and elegant, aiming to provide useful tools for people to use every day. A loyal community of customers around the world regularly feed into the design process and follow the invention of new products each year. Such a treat to talk to Amy. As many of you know, I am one of these loyal community of customers of Markenfold, and I knew that as we have had an ongoing conversation about the fancy notebook challenge in which I encourage listeners, students, and those who attend the Instagram lives I hold every Friday to go through your house, find that fancy notebook that you've been saving for a special occasion and use it now. You deserve this fancy notebook. But now you don't just have to take my word for it. I wanted to bring Amy on to talk about the importance of valuing ourselves, nurturing ourselves as writers with tools that support us. And we discuss many aspects of this. Why is it so difficult for us to use the fancy notebook and to get it out and believe that we're ready? There are many layers to this, and I think we got into all of them. So... I hope that you are convinced after listening to this wonderful conversation today with Amy. I'm delighted to present Amy Cooper-Wright. Hey, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. So there is a phenomenon that I have discussed extensively with clients and with followers and with listeners of the show. And that is this, how how do I put this? This crazy relationship people seem to have with this idea of the fancy notebook. And that is that people will go out, people who write, obsessively buy notebooks that they find incredibly beautiful and then live in terror that whatever they're going to write in them is not 
adequate or it's not doing the notebook justice. And so these beautiful (laughs) notebooks gather dust in their houses. And I have created a hashtag, the fancy notebook challenge, which is Mm -hmm. don't wait to use the notebook, use it now. That's part of the, you don't have to make nice things in the notebook to do the notebook justice. So I went to the source, you make the nicest notebooks I know. So I wanted to get (laughs) into how you feel about this idea of what is notebook worthy and how does that work in your world? It's, it's very interesting. I have a lot to say about this, as you can imagine. Um, oh, yeah. I think I'll get very deep very quickly. Excellent. I studied philosophy before I became a notebook designer and maker. Um, and I also write a lot. And so I have very strong feelings about notebooks. And that's probably why I kind of ended up doing what I do. Um, I think... Obviously, we all had the kind of scrappy notebooks at school, which were as cheap as they could possibly be and made in huge quantities as cheap as possible. Um, That kind of almost toilet paper quality (laughs) paper that was like, this is really for scribbling. This is like for your working out. This is not for your like neat handwriting. And there was always a thing of like, you know, your best handwriting goes, you know, and on the first page of your notebook, you have to do your best handwriting and you can't mess it up. Um, And I think it's funny how we kind of take that with us into adulthood and have this feeling that you need to have a cheap notebook when you're writing scribbles and then you need to have a nice notebook for nice things. So sometimes we get people wanting to buy a notebook from us because they're going to write, you know, they're going to keep a journal of their baby's first year or something really magical like that, presumably in their neatest handwriting. Um, Or they're going to write down their like family recipes that have been passed down through generations and it's going to be this thing to cherish. Um, and I think what you're talking about is really common and, and people buy our notebooks and sometimes they tell me they're still wrapped in their paper packaging on the shelf months or years later and they're frightened to use them. And I suppose for me, I sort of feel like it's almost a metaphor for your, for your life, you know, like mm. don't keep the nice crockery in the cupboard and never use it because it's supposed to be used. And if you have shoes that you love, then just wear them on a random Wednesday. Don't keep them for like a Christmas party. God knows this year they won't, well, I don't know how many Christmas parties we get to go to, so you might as well just wear them around the house. You're going to have your own party in the house. Yeah. Um, so I suppose I feel a little bit like, come on, like seize the day a little bit. And Maybe that notebook is special, but maybe it kind of represents, you know, every a day of your life is a special thing, you know, and if you waste it, it's gone. You're not getting it back. So it's a bit like a page of a notebook where, yeah, you might mess it up, but you also might mess up a day and never mind, the next one comes along and so life keeps rolling. And if you sort of spend all your time worrying about the moment where you suddenly feel ready, then you might never really get around to anything. So I sort of think... I like to kind of dare people to say, buy a really nice notebook and it is going to feel really special. And if you mess it up, you're going to be really annoyed with yourself. But kind of all the more reason to get the nice notebook and say, well, then what is it you're going to write? Like, what are you going to draw? What is your next plan? But also that it's not perfect. Like every day you don't step out and expect every moment of that day to go absolutely according to plan because that would be really boring so you do do scribbles and you do do kind of messy stuff that goes wrong 
and then you just turn the page and you kind of keep going. Um, so yeah, so <laughs> that's maybe yeah. not the, the literal answer, but um, but it's perfect. That's kind of how I. That's kind of how I feel about it. And I, our notebooks were never intended to be luxury or saved for a special occasion. It was me designing what I thought was the kind of minimum kind of quality I felt I wanted to actually use. Well, and obviously your sense of that <laughs> quality is a lot higher <laughs> than much of the world. I mean, it's, you know, it's like a, a really comfortable jumper made out of beautiful yeah. wool, or maybe it's a bit more cashmere, I don't know. But it's I think like, it's cashmere. It's... But, <laughs> but for many people, they can't tolerate less than that because it's too itchy. Well, a lot of us buy cashmere jumpers and wear them every day through the winter, and we don't consider ourselves to be kind of divas, and they're not, we're not spending thousands of pounds on them. Right. Um, but we're not spending, it's not the cheapest thing you can get your hands on. It's exactly. It's a little bit of luxury, but it's also, if that thing makes you happy every morning when you put it on, then it's worth a hundred pounds or whatever you're spending. You know, it's not obscene amounts of money. Obviously not everybody could afford that, but it's, if something really makes you feel that good every day, then there is some value to that, you know? I think so. And I think the thing about messing up the perception of what messing up is because mm-hmm. as you were talking i was thinking about this idea of that yeah we think in notebooks we figure things out we have ideas that we sort through but if we think about libraries and archives that i've been to nobody wants to have jane austen's perfectly written notebook that's completely neat with no mistakes the mistakes are what we value when we look back on someone's notebooks and the scribbles and the doodles and the things crossed out or the things where people change their mind so I'm really interested in and I'm glad that you've got the philosophy backing but I'm curious about where does that change like why are we different for ourselves that we have to write something perfect but we're interested in other people's changes and and we think that's valuable I'm wondering where we get that from I think there's a thing about process and then the kind of finished end result. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm not as experienced a writer as you are, but, you know, surely everybody knows you don't sit down and write a novel from start to finish. You don't just pick up a pen and just sit down one day and then kind of get up when you're done. That would be amazing. It's 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 a process and it's revisions and it's more like, I presume it's a bit like our creative process. You know, it's like sculpture. So you have a go. You sleep on it, you go away. We quite often pin things up on the wall just to kind of have them there in the background for a couple of weeks. And then you walk in one day and you're doing something else, but it catches you out the corner of your eye and it either feels right or it doesn't. And then you kind of suddenly spot something that you want to change. And it's an iterative process and you keep coming back to it. And if you put too much pressure on, you have to get it absolutely right first time, then you'll almost just buckle under the pressure and never do anything. So not being afraid to sit down and write a load of rubbish and then have another go it's it's sort of breaking the ice is almost the most important thing um but I think like you say with Jane Austen you know it's we're all kind of embarrassed of our own cock-ups but then it's it's really nice to see other people's because you think well she ended up with something (laughs) genius but she was just human along the way and that's very humbling to see that she also had a process I mean, I think that's what's beautiful about having a really nice notebook is not valuing only the end product. Like the point of a book, granted, most of us who are readers, we only interact with the end product. So that's what we've been trained to value. We read Mm -hmm. 
we buy a book in the shop. We don't get to check in on the way. I mean, maybe there's people who do this, like, you know, if they're revealing their drafts along the way, but all we ever read are people's end products. And then we're stuck with these imperfect versions that we're making ourselves. And Mm -hmm. to me, it's a measure of respect for that middle area, like you're saying, where you're figuring things out and they're not perfect to have a beautiful place to put those intermediate steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, like you say, I think we've become fixated on the end result. Maybe it comes from school where you kind of hand in your finished essay, but they're not really interested in the process so much. Um, But also, you know, big companies... I don't know, you, you see a TV show, you see the finished, polished edit, don't you? You don't get to see the kind of process that went into it. And maybe we're all kind of guilty of hiding the the ugly stuff and just showing it the kind of polished, finished thing and giving, and you know, it's the same with sort of social media and stuff like that. You know, we all post things on social media and, it, you know, obviously we would take a photo after we've tidied up, not before. <laughs> and <laughs> there's a kind of... Um, illusion that we're all slightly giving that everything's a little bit more polished but maybe there's something about embracing that process and there's a real beauty in the process itself warts and all um but I mean for me notebooks are very private places and my relationship with my notebook is a very special one and I sort of I guard mine quite fiercely I don't let people I I got this old collection of notebooks down from the attic this morning and it was all dusty, and it has on it in Sharpie, Amy's old diaries, please don't read. Mm. And it's all taped up, because, I mean, I wrote some stupid things when I was 14 years old that I wouldn't want my now husband to read, (laughs) or anybody (laughs) else. And it's lovely for me to revisit them, but they're really very private, and it's it's quite an intimate thing. It's where you can be so honest and share your, your inner thoughts. I mean, for me, writing in notebooks has always been more of a diary, than a piece of writing that I'm planning to publish or share. Um, but I feel like that's a very personal thing. And it's therefore what you do in that space should be all about what feels good to you. It shouldn't be about what anybody else thinks um, outside of that. Yeah, and that's every bit as important as something you're going to write that you ultimately want someone else to read. Because even if I'm <laughs> writing something whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and I plan for someone else to read it, I'm also keeping a diary to just digest life with, basically. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, making sense of whatever is happening. Um, There's been a lot more of it this year, as you can imagine. (laughs) And just because there's so much to make sense of. And I think that that deserves a place too. It isn't just about creating a product. I think we, we, we don't have to commodify our, you know, our need to write something down in order to understand it. Yeah. I don't think so. But it's also like, you think about the, you know, the journey you're going on, you know, if you see an Olympic athlete, you know, competing, obviously they look incredible on the day and they've got their really slick looking outfit, whatever that may be. But you kind of assume that when they were training, they might have also treated themselves to a pretty nice tracksuit and some quite nice trainers because that's kind of what they do. So if you're a writer, there's a little bit of like, well, are you training for the Olympics or are you just kind of like messing around in your back garden? Like if if you think that you're taking this seriously and you put real value on, on your work, 
then you set yourself up with the kind of professional set of tools that make you feel like you're kind of in the in the big league and you're doing it properly. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's exactly what it comes down to because people have such baggage around whether or not they're allowed to call themselves a real writer and mm. like a real writer like and whatever that bar is it's sort of like you know an olympic athlete like the bar keeps getting moved up a little bit it's like once you've broken mm-hmm. one record you want to break another one so it's like oh yeah 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 i published a book but it didn't win any awards or oh it just won a minor award oh or it just won one one time and i won't win it again or whatever the bar is it seems to keep moving mm-hmm. and you have to do just a bit more in order to be justified as a real writer and a real writer gets to use fancy tools but i'm it's like we don't, we have so many more obstacles. And my favorite example that I always use is like, I have a number of friends who went to law school and practice law and none of them has ever said to me, not once, and they don't work for fancy law firms. They do like humanitarian stuff. None of them have ever said, oh, I don't know if I'm a real lawyer. You know, like I go to court from time to time, but I I wouldn't necessarily call myself a lawyer. Like none of them have that concern. But Mm. people I know who are writers say that kind of thing all the time and worry if we've done enough or if we've done it the right way. And I think that, you know, the ability to use fancy tools or tools presumed to be fancy is another thing like, oh, if I had reached this level, then I would be allowed, but not yet. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I wonder if being a writer is similar to being your own boss in the sense I am that, you know, you, you're at the beginning, you're on your own and you're kind of just doing this thing. And you, you know, when you're alone, you're in a strange kind of bubble and you're in a weird space, but you don't have a professional environment around you necessarily to kind of bounce off and and remind you how busy and big and important you are. A lot of that's got to come from inside and that's quite hard to muster sometimes. Um, when it's all so self-initiated, um, it, yeah, I can, I can, I can understand that kind of, that you almost feel obliged to be a bit self-deprecating. Well, I think it's also, it just, it does sometimes feel like you're breaking the rules. It's like, Oh, I get to do this fun thing. You know, that there's, it's almost like, I think because I have both, like I write and I do my own thing. And there is a bit of like, wow, that's pretty great. So there is a, a, a need to downplay it. But then there's also yeah. this sense of there isn't an external system that tells you when you have arrived or not. You have to decide for yourself. Yeah, you're not part of a kind of structured system of you qualify for this thing and then you apply for this job and then you get a business card with your new job title written on it. And then you get your kind of salary that reflects that. And you get all your colleagues who kind of refer to you as the person who does this job. You know, you have to kind of make all this stuff up in your head. Um, Yeah. But you have an anniversary the week that this episode is coming out for what you've been doing. And terribly, I probably have the same feeling that you're talking about of um, of thinking, <laughs> oh, well, you know, <laughs> playing things down. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing that it's five years. It's, um, it's an incredible point to have got to. And um, I think I'm the same as you, you know, with, with writing, that whatever stage you get to, you think, oh, but I need to get to there next. Um, but maybe that's what makes us self-initiating people in the first place is that we're always kind of looking to the next, the next thing. 
How did you first, so I'm interested in how did the first notebook come together? Was the very first thing a diary or, or did the notebooks grow in? I, I don't know the very, very beginning thought that led to what Mark and Fold is now. The first, the first thing was a notebook and it was, um, it was me creating what I thought was the, the ideal notebook. So I used to spend an awful lot of time, um, in stationery shops, choosing notebooks, spending all the money I had on notebooks and keeping them as diaries. And they were often marked a kind of significant moment for me. So if I was starting a new school year or I was going traveling or something like that, I'd go on this kind of pilgrimage to this specific shop and choose my notebook and my pen. And then I'd kind of ride home and I'd sit on the top of the bus and kind of get them out the bag and look at them and stroke them. And, you know, I was excited <laughs> to start. Um, and interestingly, I have this collection and I was going through it this morning in preparation for talking to you. And um, they, the first page is often the day of my birthday or the 1st of January. And it's very much, this is the first day of this new, you know. So I was, I was interested in saying this is the first day of the next phase, whatever that might be. Um, so notebooks were always incredibly significant to me. And then I just started to get very frustrated that every time I went to buy one, I felt like the quality was declining and I felt like the designs were getting very kind of girly. There were lots of owls and butterflies and I just felt that wasn't me. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then the more I kind of understood about the way books are made, they would often crack and, you know, struggle to open flat and when you tried there was this kind of thick layer of glue which I now know more about that you really had to kind of force it to make the book lie open flat and I just really struggled to find one that I felt was the right quality and then meanwhile I was working in graphic design as a initially as a project manager and then I went back to study a master's in graphic design myself and I studied bookbinding and learned how to make books myself. So the more I understood about all of this, I could see the corners they were cutting and that it's cheaper to make books like that, basically. You know, there's a sort of magazine binding where magazines are obviously designed to be read, not written in. And so if you look at a magazine, it will kind of curve down and the pages don't completely flatten out because they don't need to because it's a magazine. But those are cheap things which once upon a time were produced every couple of weeks or month or once a month to be distributed massively around the world. Obviously things have changed a little bit, but people started making notebooks that way because it was cheaper. It's the and staple, right? They put the not staple, right. they put the staple you can, through and you then can it staple them. Up, right? You can staple them, which is another pet hate. Um, <laughs> but this is where you, you either get loose sheets and, um, so literally if you look at a magazine, they'll have, there'll be loose sheets of paper that have been trimmed and then a load of glue has been slathered on hot and they call right. that hot melt glue. And then that is really, really stiff and thick. And so you wouldn't be able, if you, if you opened a paperback book or a magazine completely flat, it would snap yep. and fall apart. So, um, but you can also thread sew the sections and then still use the hot melt glue. And then it's still really stiff and horrible. Um, so, I then did all this research and found out about how it needs to be done properly. And, and what we now do is the, the sections are sewn. So you get 16 page sections, which are thread sewn together. And then 
the glue that goes on is cold. So it's like PVA glue that you would use at primary school. Or we did in the UK anyway. Um, and a very thin layer of that is, is applied and then it's left to just air dry. So it's really strong glue, but it's very flexible. And then when the cover's put on, the cover doesn't get glued on the spine and make mm. it stiff. Our covers get glued either side of the spine. So if you open our books out, you'll see yeah, there's two little hinges. Mm -hmm. And then the, bit, the actual spine is allowed to kind of curve completely and flop and do the kind of flexible bend. I'm doing weird hand gestures at you right now. I know, we're weird. doing the hand gestures <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> We had had, um, so it's allowed to curve and flex in the way that you need it to. And then the cover just kind of gets out of the way. Yeah. Um, so now you know this, when you're in a bookshop or you're looking at cheap notebooks, if you open them up, as I do, whenever I go into stationery shops, <laughs> I go around opening them all and annoy whoever I'm with. Um, you can test how, how flexible it is. And I think, I mean, in the few years, in the five years since we started, things have changed an awful lot. So this is becoming much, much more mainstream now, this idea that notebooks do actually have to open flat and this shortcut that they were all kind of cashing in on for a few years isn't really acceptable to a lot of people anymore. Um, yeah, we hear lay then, flat binding now and people know that's something you want to ask for. Exactly, exactly. Although even within that, there are better examples than others and people who kind of know how to do it better than others. Um, but the other thing I found was that, and increase, you know, even now, to be honest, if we're trying to source, you know, pencils or other bits of stationery, there's this, this idea that everything needs to be made on a ridiculously large scale. Mm. So the whole paper industry is, is built around quantity, um, and economies of scale. So when you ask to buy, you know, 20 sheets of a special paper they say well it'd be a lot cheaper if you bought 10,000 mm -hmm. and it's like yeah but I don't need 10,000 and so unfortunately like a lot of the big big global companies that produce diaries and things they'll make millions of them and if a load of them don't get sold they just get pulped mm. so they're conscious that that waste is happening and they're just building that into their process and it's fine and we just felt that's not right. And we should be much more measured and make the right amount. And if they sell out, that's fine. But we try and kind of make the right amount and just do things in a slightly more kind of measured way, you know, that this kind of absurd mass production is just kind of too much. And then, oh, it doesn't matter if half of them just go in the bin because we've made all this money. <laughs> and it's kind of like, there's no, there's no kind of, um, consideration of other costs other than financial you know yeah, it's the like, environmental impacts and yeah. the waste that you're just piling up all this crap or you're burning it which obviously again it has an impact it's not just oh well we'll just chuck them away it doesn't matter um, so there was that element as well and and that when you do walk into most stationery shops and you pick up these notebooks that feel really horrible and don't open properly um you also have no idea what the paper is, what it's made of, where it's come from, how it was produced, how the waste gets disposed of. None of this information is there. And I think for a long time, there was a feeling that like, maybe people didn't really care. They just wanted a notebook for eight quid and they didn't really want to think about it. And to some extent, I think that's still the case. Um, but that's where the first notebook started. 
was mm. these two strands. So it was making the notebook itself better, but it was also um, engaging with the process from the very beginning and finding out where the tree comes from, you know, if it's come from a tree, where that was, what's gone into the paper. Um, and the whole process, the binding, and we're telling people where it was made and, and why we've done it that way. Yeah, it's the difference in many ways. And I never thought of this crossover, but there's been this increase of awareness in terms of like fast fashion. Like people don't mm-hmm. want to be quite so in the fast fashion. I have to have a new thing every five minutes and so on. And looking at the consequences and the incredible waste that comes from that. That I, But I yeah. never thought about that with stationery, but of course it's there. Yeah, well, it's there with everything. And I think, you know, once I've, once I set up the business and I started talking to stockists and understanding the kind of markups they need for wholesale and for retail, you realize that, you know, when your t-shirt costs five pounds, when you work backwards and you realize how much that means the actual t-shirt costs to make, somebody's not getting paid enough for putting your t-shirt together or, you know, when you trace it back, you realize that, you know, things things cost what they cost and you just have to accept that and we've all got very spoiled because I can go to the high street now and if I really want to I can buy an outfit for 20 pounds and it might look kind of right um and I can just choose to ignore all of these other things for five minutes and no one will know and I hand over my 20 pounds and off I go and I think it's difficult to make people make these decisions and unfortunately I think the corporate world has made it very easy for us and said it's okay no one's gonna know it's just you and your credit card at that at that cash desk um you just hand over the money that you want to hand over you just buy the thing that you really really want and take it home and you'll have it in five minutes and it's not even dented your your bank balance um they made it very very easy for us to not have to kind of weigh up all these other considerations um and it's good that the, this discussion is happening around fast fashion. And like, but like you say, people don't really think about it with with stationery and and other other items. Um, and I, we try to encourage them to, but it's very difficult because you can't just sort of grab people and sit them down <laughs> and lecture them because they want to buy a notebook. You have to kind of do it softly. And in the end, a lot of people I think are drawn to our stuff because they just think it looks lovely and they like using it. And then after a while, they maybe start to think about these other considerations, but we can't bang them over, you know, we can't bang people over the head and make them listen to us. We can just kind of quietly explain and then hope that it it gets through. But it's very difficult because we're constantly being asked why our notebooks are more expensive than others. And some element of it is the materials we're using are measurably better the paper is measurably thicker it's made in the UK it's made sustainably there are kind of very clear reasons why the materials at the beginning are just more expensive um we only buy paper that's from FSC forests so for every tree they chop down they plant three um and then we also use recycled pulp and we even use um a pulp made from used coffee cups so they collect them up from McDonald's and Costa in the UK high street and they make that into paper. Um, but then it's every step of this process where everything is being considered and that's where all these costs come in. Um, and I think we've all got much into the, 
way of thinking that you you see products on a shelf and you just think, well, that one's been overpriced as if someone's just sat there and come up with a number just kind of out of thin air, um, that the price might not reflect maybe the process behind it as well. Um, we kind of don't really want to engage with that. Maybe that comes back to what we were talking to before about it's just an end product and no one wants to show you the process, but actually maybe you need to see the process because then you're getting the full picture. And then if you have a notebook or you have things where the process has been valued, maybe that will help you to value the process that goes into your own writing. It's like the, the considered object, um, it makes you think differently about what you're writing, but it also makes you value it differently. I mean, I think about this a lot also with photography because we can basically take an infinite number of photographs now. And when I studied photography, I used film and I had to think really hard about how I wanted to use each one of those windows. And in Mm. some ways I was more satisfied with what I came out with because of the limitation. I think we also see limitation as a negative when I often find that a limit can cause you to persevere or consider things differently. And then you end up with something that you're happier with. I think definitely. I think the role of film is really interesting because it gets used up. When you've chosen to take that photograph, you've used up one of your 24 exposures and you can't have it back. And I think that's actually really, really important. I have so many photographs of my children on all my different devices that all my devices are shouting at me saying, I'm full, I'm full, get rid of some of this stuff. But I start going through them and I can't delete a video of my son like taking his first steps. And so I'm just constantly living in this state of, I don't get any of these photos printed. I don't actually like re-consume them or enjoy them on a daily basis. I just don't want to let them go. So they're just sort of sitting there in digital form. And that doesn't help. It would have been much better if you said to me, okay, well, maybe you just need to take a picture a day and make it a really good one. And then you'd have this beautiful collection that you could actually, it would be the right scale for you to actually look back at the pictures and and enjoy them. Yeah. I think it's, it's, there's always this tension. It's like, I think about spectrums and how we go back and forth on spectrums all the time. It's like, on the one Mm -hmm. hand, we don't want to feel so intimidated by something that we have that we won't write in it. You know, it's like, oh, I have this very fancy pen and I have this whole thing and I'm too scared to break it. But on the other hand, it's like, you want to value yourself enough that you're allowed to use something enjoyable. So it's like, we have to strike that balance somehow. Absolutely. I think you need to, I mean, you know, in terms of writers having nice tools, I think, you know, it's like we were saying, it's the athlete having a good tracksuit that performs the way they need and it keeps them warm on a cold morning or I don't know, whatever it might do. Um, and uh, it's that feeling of being comfortable and and literally the feeling of your pen touching that paper, feeling smooth, feeling good, um, that that does make a difference. You know, if, if I was writing in a cheap biro and I was using one of those horrible wiro diaries and your hand is constantly crossing over the wiro and it's banging into your hand and you, it's, it's, it's actually kind of grating away and interrupting the flow of thought. And when you're writing in your comfortable notebook that feels really, really good to write in, you feel like this is a smooth process. This just, this just feels good. It's like sitting in a, in a, 
workspace that's warm enough and dry enough for you to kind of get on with your with your work and you're not disturbed by kind of outside noise or or the freezing cold or other kind of interruptions um but I also think it's like you were saying it's it's if you have a nice notebook you are giving some value to the ideas that you're about to have and the words that you're about to put down. You're saying, what I'm going to write is good enough that it deserves to be in this receptacle, you know, um, and my work deserves to, to go in there. Um, I think buying yourself a nice notebook and saying, this is, this is going to be my next piece of writing you're kind of having faith and confidence in what you're about to achieve and what, what kind of lies ahead. I think we have a lovely story, actually. There's a writer oh. in the UK called Huma. Oh, so I don't know if I can say her name correctly. Huma Qureshi. Mm. Um, she's a journalist and a writer and she's just having her memoir published in the new year. And she wrote the first draft in her Mark and Fold notebook. Mm. Um, which is very special to us. And it's like we were saying about the, the, the finished product versus the process, that for me, I'm obviously going to buy a copy of her book, but I also really want to see that notebook with all her <laughs> hand, well, her handwriting yeah. and also presumably crossings out and, and annotations and corrections and whole passages she'll have scribbled out and said, oh no, I hate that. I'm not going to include that. Um, especially when it's so personal that it's your memoir and it's it's called How We Met. So I think it's to do with meeting her husband, but I don't really know. I'm sure there's more to it than that. Um, but the idea that she sat down and chose to use that notebook to write it is very special to us. That's amazing. I think it's the other thing, and I am like possibly the least qualified person to even bring this concept up, but it fascinates me this idea of philosophy of mind and oh yeah I did a paper on that oh uni. brilliant okay good <laughs> because I I've had like a very basic introduction actually from someone else this season who mentioned it and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since but that the idea that if I write something in a notebook, if I write my ideas about what the story is going to be in the notebook, then the notebook is in some ways, by extension, part of my mind. It's not just the brain. It's all of the containers that hold the thoughts that I have, which mm -hmm. I may be completely screwing up the idea. But I always think, okay, well, if that's true, then I want to put them in the, the comfiest containers, you know, the most beautiful vessels that I can. If well, absolutely. They're your, they're your innermost thoughts and ambitions and ideas. Like, is there any more valuable thing in the world? The idea that you'd be in a shop and say, oh, I'll just get the cheap one. <laughs> Seems to me like, what are you doing? Yeah, that your, your um, ideas are so important. They build your future. They build your life. Like Exactly. I like that idea. I do think certainly that I think thoughts that you have in your mind when you articulate them and say them out loud or when you write them down on a piece of paper, they fundamentally change. You can think it's the same idea, but it's like if something's bothering you and you think you understand it, and then when you're forced to articulate it to another person and actually put it into words, quite often the words that come out aren't exactly what you were expecting in a strange kind of way. So you've got this idea of how you want it to be and then when you, when you have to put words to it, it changes and verbally and, and, and 
What's the ver- what's the equivalent of verbally when you're writing? <laughs> Maybe just written. Yeah, whether you're speaking or writing, I think yeah. those words also take a different form. So yeah, your, your written voice and your your verbal voice aren't the same thing. You're not quite the same person. So um, certainly, when you write things down in a notebook, it is an externalization of what's in your mind. Well, certainly you couldn't claim to have written a book if you'd just written it in your head, could you? You couldn't go around saying, oh, I've written this great novel. It's all up here. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that would be exciting. I'll let you read it one day. Can I have a book deal? Well, no, not really. <laughs> yeah, we need to see it. But it's also like, I mean, I think to me, once I've translated it, like whatever idea I have, once that's gone through this process, and it does feel like translation, even though it's the same language. Mm-hmm. into written form or spoken form on the way to written form or however that form that takes, then I feel this tremendous amount of relief that it's contained somewhere else. And it's a very weird thing, but it's impossible for me to remember every single word of this novel. There's no way. Yeah. Like somebody yeah. could go through it. If they took it away from me right now, read a chapter and was like, oh, where you said this, it was really wonderful. And I would say, did, did I write that? I'm not 100% certain. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I trust you because you took the draft for me, but like you have to kind of trust the notebook or the, the document and the computer or the whatever container you put it into to hold the idea for you. Yeah. But I think that that also applies to much more practical things. It's why we write lists because yes. you're lying in bed at night and you feel anxious and it's that feeling of oh God, what if one of these things like falls out the back of my head and, you know, I'm trying to hold them all. And it's literally like, you're trying to hold all these things in and they're just like spilling out because there's too many of them. And if you write them down, you feel like, well, they're fixed now. They're a concrete thing. They're this object in my hand. I can look at it and say, well, okay, there's six things on my list. Whereas before I just felt like there were too many things in my head, but now I know there's six of them because they're on this piece of paper. And, um, I think, for a lot of people, that's why stationery can be very important is or paper and set in a sense is writing things down. You're, you get some comfort from that. You've kind of made them, made them into real things. Whereas if they're in your mind, they could kind of, you could just forget them. They could just float away or you could wake up tomorrow morning and suddenly the novel's gone and where did it go? <laughs> but there's no way I could hold the whole thing. That is the most terrifying thought I could possibly have. I'm like, okay, yeah. great. We're going to take all physical you know, or digital or whatever evidence of this book away and you have to remember it. I'd be like, well, then it's just gone. No, no. But I I have a funny thing where um, I have a a weird admission, which is that although we um, produce diaries and it's one of our main focuses, I love designing them and I love the concept of using them. I don't tend to use one myself because I actually do have a really good memory and I really enjoy, um, well, I don't enjoy, but I just tend to hold dates in my mind and I have quite a clear image in my mind of the week and what's happening when and how things are going to go. So, um, that's kind of what inspired us to design the diary is my image in my head of the way the week is and helping to kind of build that into a visual form. Um, but a lot of the people we spoke to who used diaries were people who didn't have a very good memory and had this anxiety about forgetting things or missing things and having this object in their hand where they'd written everything down 
comforted them. They felt like I'm going to be okay because it's all written in my diary. And, and one of them, we had this amazing quote where one of them said, losing my diary would be worse than crashing the car <laughs> <laughs> because, because it has everything in. And I was kind of like, oh my goodness, do you not have any backups? Like, do you not put it in your phone calendar as well, maybe just in case, you know, if it's really important. And she said, no, no, everything's just written in my diary. Oh God. Um, which again, that's the whole other thing of like, what if you lose it? Of course. But <clears throat> I do think there's this thing of it, writing things down is turning them into objects. But in your, when they're in your head, they're floating thoughts. They're not really real. And when you've written them down, they are. And for me, that's very different to writing on a computer. When I type into a computer, like we were saying, verbalizing something and writing it down are not the same. For me, I think typing and writing with a pen again are not actually the same mental process you don't feel the same way about those words when you're writing them on a piece of paper somehow no I agree I think at different stages of the process I need to type it and at different stages I need to write it on a page Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that there are different points when both of those are necessary and one won't substitute for the other They both have importance. And I find that when the idea is the most um, ephemeral, when it's it's really early and undefined and I don't have a concrete sense of it, that's when writing in a notebook matters the most. And later, when the idea is really clear, then it's like I can use a more ephemeral medium like typing because the idea has become solid if that makes yeah. sense and I find I go back the other way as well so I'll mm-hmm. type something and then I'll print it out and yes. then I'll scribble on the piece of paper and I really enjoy doing that because I can edit my own work almost as if someone else wrote it because it's oh typed. yeah it's a sort of strange thing where I can my writing interacts with the typed words and it's almost like they're two different minds that that are working positively against each other if you see what I mean Yes, absolutely. I feel the same way. Like I have actually, well, it's sort of pointless to show this with the podcast, but I have a pen that's like a red pen and mm-hmm. it's very, it's a particular red pen and it has proofreading marks down the side of it. So like your, your teacher pen. Yeah, it's basically, <laughs> it's not a teacher <laughs> nerd pen, but I don't use it when I'm teaching. I only use it for like making notes on printouts of manuscript. And um, it's the same thing. And I think that's right. It's like a typed font is neutral. It doesn't have mm-hmm. personality in it. And so... Uh, it gives objectivity. But if I was to look, when I look at my own notebooks and things that I've written myself, it's so clear that they're mine. So I, it's very hard to be objective. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, I think the point is that I think a lot of people go for the sort of cheap, basic notebook because they feel this pressure to perform if they have a fancy one. But to sort of come to the other side of this conversation, I think for me that I have to kind of become my future self and believe that it's going to work out and believe Mm -hmm. that ultimately it's going to be valuable and that it isn't about pressure, it's just about trust and that I trust I will get where I want to go and that I may want to refer back to this someday and I want to make referring back to that enjoyable. And mm-hmm. I want a container that will last. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think for me also, there is that feeling of it will get used up. And mm. that's 
that's kind of an important thing to remember in in life. We are all getting older every day and, you know, every day ticks past and it's gone. And if you keep thinking, you can just kind of wait till you feel ready and then really start whatever it is that you're planning to do. Then you may find you never quite get around to it, but you kind of just need to do it right now. And so sort of taking the plunge and making a mark on that first page is is actually a very important feeling. It's it's potentially you saying, oh, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for it. It's that being bold and feeling a little bit scared, but going for it. Um, I always talk about that blank page being like a field of snow when you step out in the morning and it's snowed, which doesn't happen that much in the UK. So a field of fresh snow is a rare and special thing for us, probably more than you in Berlin. No, I've, um, never, I've never seen one since we've lived here. Oh, well, there you go. Um, and it's that thing of who could resist walking on on that field of snow. And part of you maybe wants to stand at the side and just admire the untouched snow, but eventually you're going to just jump right in and leave loads of footprints and it's going to be really, really fun. And it's that instinct that even the youngest child would have of, oh, I'm going to run right through this. And you want to be the first one and you want to get there before your big brother comes along and leaps into it. You want to kind of get in and be the first footprint. And I think it's the same thing with the blank page of, have that excited childlike feeling of I get to make the first footstep rather than oh my god I better not spoil it because you know there is something about that kind of blank white page waiting for you it's kind of asking you like come on what are you gonna do and um that's that's quite that should be an inviting exciting thing it shouldn't be something that you kind of shy away from and say oh well I'll just buy you know I'll just I'll just go for something less intimidating and then I won't have to worry about it yeah, I think you, you deserve to have fun with this. So yeah, I think that I agree. I would hold the space of this can be fun. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for this. I feel like we could go on for days, but <laughs> I, uh, but it's been such a joy and so fun to get into the history of it and, and to think more about a notebook. I don't think I will look at my notebooks the same, even even after knowing your notebooks. Now I know them better. I hope this will this will inspire you to um yeah, go for it and crack into a new one. Oh yeah, I'm about due for it. Pretty exciting. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.